0: This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all.
1: Here, good afternoon, wherever you are. Um, I'm, we're so super lucky because today is Indigenous Peoples Day. Some people used to call it Columbus Day. And in a lot of the country, it's been appropriately renamed Indigenous Peoples Day, and um, we're really lucky to have Chrissy Castro with us, who is um, a leader in um, in Native American vote and Indigenous Peoples' rights. I'm just going to read a quick bio, Chrissy. Um, just want to make sure we we can see you and hear you. I'm here. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> Thanks. Um So Chrissy Castro is Diné, which means she's a member of the Navajo Nation and Chicana. She is the chairperson of the Los Angeles City City and County Native American Indian Commission, and she co-led the change to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day in the city and county of Los Angeles. She was a co-founder of Indigenous Women Rise, which organized the Indigenous Women contingent of 1,000 Indigenous women at the Women's March in D.C., She's the network weaver of Native Voice Network, a national network of 35-plus Native-led organizations that mobilize through indigenous cultural values, and she recently launched two projects to build community and political power of Native communities locally, the California Native Vote Project and Nationally Advanced Native Political Leadership. She's been writing about what matters to Native voters and why presidential candidates should be listening to Native peoples. Um, And we are so lucky to have you with us. Thank you for spending this day with us, Chrissy, which I'm sure is busy for you in so many ways.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation, Saru. I have first of all happy Indigenous Peoples Day. (laughs) I am um, calling in from the traditional and unceded territory of the Tongva peoples um, and also have a responsibility to the Tataviam and Chumash peoples who um, also are the original tribes of the greater um, LA County area if you want to go ahead and drop you know i guess you're all in the same area but maybe you come from different places so if you know the indigenous communities um from which you come from where you you've been raised um if you want to drop that into the chat just so we have some a sense of you know uh the diversity of lands that that you'll have been raised on um that would be fantastic and if you don't know that's okay too Um, but maybe this is a day for you to um, have that uh, reflection and and to consider that as well um, so thank you so much, Saru, for for inviting me to speak on this. Um, you know, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that <clears throat> when I was in my 20s, I'm like listening to Saru's introduction and I'm like, I never would have thought that that would be me. Like I'd be <laughs> the person that is um, working on so much voter uh, issues, <clears throat> my politics, Um, we're way left. (laughs) I'm like, you know, just like F the system. This thing does not work for us. So I really um, uh, empathize and understand where our young people are coming from, many of whom have that feeling now, right? So um, I'll say that there have been many pivotal moments that have actually had me full swing to think a different way um, and to do the work that I'm doing because I see it as a tactic and as a strategy. So I'll say that the most um, you know, powerful experience that really changed my mind and my view of this was actually when the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, was signed. Um, And uh, so uh, I was part of an indigenous delegation that went um, to Bolivia to celebrate. And even before that, um, I was part of an international indigenous um, leadership fellowship that um, we've we've basically uh, visited Bolivia right uh, when Evo Morales was um, first elected as president and um, what we did is we traveled across the country to uh, really understand their movement work um, in Bolivia and Um, It was amazing to see, like, you know, Evo Morales was the kind of, you know, the obviously at the the greatest point of of position in that country. But what was beautiful to see was that it was more of a movement. It was a wave of indigenous peoples taking up mayorships and taking, you know, all throughout their government system, taking up leadership and actually making decisions um, for that country based on indigenous value systems. Um, Now, I'm not saying any leader is perfect, but it's really about the movement for me that was, you know, um, really called me in to say um, that this is actually possible. We could actually transform these systems. Um, and, And the other very, very exciting thing to me was that um, Bolivia is the place that has the most gender parity as it pertains to um, representation and elected office uh, so there wasn't it wasn 't just indigenous men there were so many indigenous women that were taking up this leadership and um, I really believe that um, in order for us to really transform and make it you know on these lands that we are going to have to rematriate leadership and uh, indigenous women held, uh, you know, we uh, were matrilineal, matrilocal people for the most part. Um, and we had held positions of power and we were leaders and we were recognized as such. Um, and having, and we also did not just have two genders. We didn't have just men and women. We had, um, you know, some tribes had eight and nine genders. Um, it was, we very gender fluid. Um, societies that understood that we all have a critical role to play um, and that that's actually a gift um, to families. And um, so I really believe that for me, uh, you know, indigenizing um, and coming back to uh, indigenous value systems and the ways that we uh, choose to prioritize uh, decisions that we make Um, are what's not only going to save native and indigenous peoples um, in this country, but it's going to save us all Um, and that we all have a place in that because indigenous value systems are really about relationships. (laughs) It's about redistribution. Um, So the idea that, you know, we didn't show wealth by hoarding it and accumulating it. We showed our wealth by how much we could give away. (laughs) and you know so like these uh, value systems and reciprocity like we see that we have a relationship not only with each other as human beings but we have a relationship with the earth and the water and if we don't take care of those things that we're not going to be taken care of so i really see the the chaos and the devastation and all of the things that are happening as huge huge red flags some people don't see as that but i just see them as huge red flags that we are we are society that's so out of balance and out of order and so um you know i i just open up by saying um that because uh you know there's there's people in our community i'll say that are very resistant to this idea of voting um because uh for very good reasons right for all of the the um, relation the mistrust of government um, that has happened you know from contact to now. Um, but I really see it as a critical piece of a larger movement building strategy um, that is about organizing and um, leadership development and all of these other kinds of work. So I feel like it's it's part of a much larger larger strategy. So I'm going to um, stop there and just make sure like I'm in the right vicinity of what I'm supposed to be talking about, Saru. Okay.
1: <laughs> For sure. And if you don't mind walking through your journey of, I so feel you starting from a place of why would we even be talking about voter engagement to now coming full circle? If you could just walk us through that journey, that'd be amazing.
2: Yeah. But I also wanted to just... Um, Also just share like, you know, the history of voting rights for Native Americans in the country, if that would be okay. So um, basically, you know, we originally, um, the the government um, managed its relationship with um, uh, Native American people through a department that no longer exists, but it was called the US Department of War. Um, so we were not seen as citizens. Um, if you look at the Constitution, I think they call us like merciless, savage Indians or something like that. And I think the president just put out a similar rhetoric <laughs> a day or two ago about Columbus Day and the radicals that are trying to change it to Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, so, oh my gosh, it's so, um, it's it's it shouldn't be shocking, but it's so shocking to me that that white supremacist mentality that began colonization through um i don't know if you all are aware but um during contact um as the you know uh, columbus uh, came into the to the caribbean um there was actually a papal bull so it's like a the pope's decree a papal bull that basically said that it was called the doctrine of discovery which meant that um, if people from europe that were christian came to any lands and found people that were not christian that um, those lands are actually vacant because those people are not really human beings and so that's why there's like um, that they have the legal and religious authority to take and claim those lands um, so for me, when we talk about like white supremacist structures, which we are trying to erode, like for, for us, like that's the starting point of, um, white supremacy. Um, and so, you know, we don't, you know, I can't give 500 years of history in 10 minutes We're like, <laughs> you know, our educational systems, um, are in, on purpose do not tell us these things, right. As we're, we're going through our various systems and we're working to change that, but, you know, um, you know, I feel like I have to start there because there's just been so many different waves of policy um, that have been, you know, stripping us of our lands, uh, stripping us of our identity, uh, moving us away from our traditional ways of even sustaining ourselves and our food systems, um, and so creating this dependent relationship with the government um, is basically, you know, the strategy and. If you look at U.S. federal Indian policy all throughout, um, you know, uh, since the formation of this country, you see that um, what they're trying to do is solve the Indian problem. And um, depending on who is in power, like, even even as people are, like, you would think that people are trying to do good, um, it was still bad for us. So it's either the policies would either be straight out like genocidal um you know violent or it would be like assimilative the people that are trying to help us was assimilative (laughs) and um you know i have a really good mentor that she's so funny, she always says like, be careful of your friends. Like, you know, when you see like, uh, organizations that are, you know, predominantly white, that are like friends of the Indians, they're like, be careful of those folks, <laughs> like they're to help, but they're not really. Um, so we see like these cycles over time. So basically, um, you know, the Native American voting rights, we, we got the right to vote in um, Let's see, I have this here, 1924, it should be, yes. So the Indian Citizenship Act was passed in 1924. And um, it was actually very, it's a complicated story, but it it was like some of our people wanted it and other people didn't. So it wasn't like a, a, a thing that it was just like, we're so happy now that we have this act. Um, at the time, you know, because we were taken off our away from our traditional homelands and mostly put on reservations that were very, um, you know, they try to make us into farmers on land that's not farmable, you know, so, again, this whole de- dependency, it was, it, it was passed during a context of a lot of hardship in our communities. So, um, you know, we, um, but, you know, some people did struggle for that. and. Um, Over time, so at the beginning, like our views on our relationship, um, you know, they it it was tenuous because um, our tribal leaders were worried that if we started to participate in this government system, that that the government would then have the authority to dictate that we no longer were our own sovereign nations. Um, so I don't know if you all know this concept of sovereignty. Could you raise your hand if you do? Okay, yeah, about half of folks. So um, basically, you know, sovereignty is the idea that um, our nations predated any European foreign powers. Um, and we are our own nations. Uh, we have our own right to self-governance. We have our own right to, to carry on our traditions, to carry up, um, to hold our lands um, and to, to protect our children and families amongst a whole lot of other things that if you want to know the whole rights framework you um could you know look at the u.n declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples um and so sovereignty is inherent it's not provided um so uh basically uh, you know the when the European powers came over, they actually created treaties with the nations, which were agreements about land use, and um, you know, it basically codified that uh, American Indian tribes are in fact nations. They were nation nation to nation agreements. So um, our tribes, when the Citizenship Act passed, were very worried that if we started to participate, um, all of a sudden the government would cease to see us as sovereign nations. And so that is, um, I feel like a really core piece of the, of the of the of the what would you say the rub that we experience um, through uh, voting rights even today. So um, I will also say that it's very interesting because although we got the right to vote in federal elections, many states did not grant us the right to vote. So we could not vote in state elections. So you see examples of, for example, in Arizona New Mexico, they had to fight um, as recent as the 1950s to get the right to vote in local and state elections. Um, And I think there is an example, I'm forgetting which state, but they didn't get the right to vote until the 1960s in their state elections. And that for me sounds shocking until I realized that how um insidious currently contemporarily we are also still being suppressed and still being you know there are conditions that make it practically impossible for us to vote now so i don't really think the struggle around voting rights is over um i think many of us more have more access but um this this struggle really continues so although we have it in theory in 1924 We still really don't have Native American voting rights in this country. I see a whole bunch of hands raised, so I'm curious about what the
1: questions are. So Saru, oh, you should keep going, Chrissy. We'll have plenty of time. You're with us till 11:30, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we'll have plenty of time. You finish your thoughts, and and then you and I can talk for a little bit, and then we'll open it up to the hands. (laughs)
2: Beautiful. So um, so yes, so very, very difficult landscape, very difficult history um, for us to then work in this landscape of, of Native American voting rights. Um, also wanted to mention the, the importance of the Voting Rights Act for us. Um, so Native Americans are the have had the most Voting Rights Act cases taken up by the Supreme Court. Um, there's Uh, been about 75 known cases. um, And, you know, that we're not able to take up um, litigation through that mechanism, but we still really use a legal strategy as a way for us to fight for our voting rights. So um, I'll just, you know, some of the examples of what kinds of, um, you know, uh, premises that we fight for those rights are, um, you know, they include uh, challenges to at-large elections. So um, basically, you know, packing a, a district. I'll give you a recent example of that happening. Um, in um, Navajo Nation, it's very at the tip of the northern part of the Navajo Nation. Um, <clears throat> in San Juan County, Utah, it's a very um, rural area. Um, it's about 60%. Native American, mostly Navajo, um, some Ute as well. And um, the way that they structured their county commissioner uh, seats, they basically packed all of the Native American areas into one district. So there was one Native seat. And they divided the rest of the county into areas that were predominantly white. So ever since the county has existed, there's only ever been one Native American commissioner, even though it's a 65%, you know, majority Native county. And um, that, that place might seem so small, but it's so significant because that's actually the base of where the Bears Ears fight has happened. So, you know, the protection of our sacred lands is really, that county commission has had so much influence on um you know how the there's been a desecration and a, a, a minimizing of the of the of that sacred site <clears throat> so um the last election cycle say 2018 uh well this has been happening for for many years but the native american rights fund they have something called the native american voting rights coalition Um, they actually, uh, you know, litigated and um, took them to court, took the county to court. So um, through a lot of struggle, um, they were able to actually um, redraw the district lines. And, um, you know, because of so much disenfranchisement, uh, rightly so, Native American peoples didn't really have care about who was on the county commission's site right? like the commissioner you know uh roles or didn't really um feel like they were part of that system or represented so there was a huge effort to actually go out and canvas and to register people to vote and to talk to them about this new these new districts um, and there were um two uh, native american uh basically uh, areas where there was a strong chance for them to elect a native person. But, um, that story is packed with so many twists and turns. If you ever wanted to read up or not, I'll share, I'll share, you know, articles with you. Um, but it's basically a story of how even though the court was mandating this community to have, to be fair to native American voters, that the actual County seat, which was, um, you know, very white Mormon influence, heavily influence, did not want to give up that power. And so you see them do all kinds of things to actually suppress that and make sure that didn't happen. So everything from kicking off thousands of Native American voters off of their voter registration list and having to re-register, To contesting people's registration because they live in rural reservation areas, so they basically made those um, votes null because they said that um, they weren't properly like in the district line. So they kicked a whole bunch of people out that way. Um, They actually uh, the county clerk uh, actually um, pulled people off Native people that were winning off of the ballot and said that they were. that you know they they didn't live in the right district to run, so we, there was examples of sheriffs or whatever the county police were coming to people's homes on their reservation and intimidating them. Um, this is this happened two years ago, right? <laughs> and the and the and what had to continue to happen is to go back and take things to court. And so you know, thankfully, um, this doesn't happen in all cases, but thankfully, at every turn. The, they kept taking it back to the court and the court would overrule what the county was doing. Um, but this was, this is a long, long battle. So, you know, the, the story, the the final punchline there is that they were actually able to organize and for the first time ever in 2018, there are two of three of those County commissioners are actually um, Native American. Um, so, you know, we, we see that in our own, you know, uh, Time. This, this whole litigation strategy that's really important. Um, I think maybe where I would, would wanna go next to just kind of giving you some of the kind of contemporary landscape and understanding of kind of where we're at um, as far as, you know, how we're working to make sure that native votes, um, that native people are engaged and that we're, um, you know, turning people out to vote in this election cycle. Uh, but I could also talk more about <laughs> other, you know, Voting Rights Act cases, uh, I'll, I'll share another good story. Um, so in North Dakota, I'm sure you saw during the last um, cycles that there's been a lot of fights around voter ID laws in uh, Indian communities. And um, in North Dakota, it, you know, was really egregious about making people have like forms of ID that have an address on them. when. People on reservations don't have addresses, and so it would, you know, effectively disenfranchise like thousands and thousands of native voters. Um, and um, we were able to to fight back on that. Um, but my favorite part of the story of that whole struggle was the fact that the man who introduced that legislation in North Dakota was actually during the same cycle that that um, law was enacted, um, actually beat him a Native American woman Ruth M. Buffalo actually beat him and unseated him in his, his, his seat which I love that story it's like immediate like karma <laughs> it's immediate feedback um, and we see these examples it's so interesting like there are so many Native people in very rural very conservative areas um, in the country yet um, and we, we have Republicans we have independents we have you know we're not a homogenous although we do lean majority um, Democrat, but there are examples of <clears throat> Indigenous women in particular that even when they're in a predominantly red space, um, these these um, examples that I am thinking of, that they're able to actually win um, in predominantly red spaces when there's not even a Native American majority. <clears throat> so Runa, Ruth Ann Buffalo is one example. I mean, Congresswoman Sharice Davids in Kansas, you know, is another. Um, there are just <clears throat> so many examples that we have um, of of uh, us being able to win against all odds. Um, so um, I'm going to stop there because I feel like I'm rambling now and I just want to make sure I'm really focused and talking about what you want me to focus on. Saturday. <laughs> no, no,
1: it's great. It's <laughs> wonderful to have you. Um, thank you again for being with us today. I did want to go back to your initial comments about, um, you know, young people really feeling like voter and, you know, what, what is voting and, and why that's not relevant and all the organizing work you've done in your life, you know, including the fight to, to in LA, at least to change from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. How do you see the organizing and social movement work connected to the voter engagement work or how has your perspective on that changed over time?
2: Yeah, thank you. So it um, was about, um, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, uh, one of our partners, the National Urban Indian Family Coalition, they held, um, they chose 12 cities to hold focus groups on political participation. And the, they held two focus groups in each area, one of um, the Native leadership to, t- to talk about, you know, political representation, participation. And they held another focus group with um, elected leaders to talk with them about their perceptions of um, native peoples uh, and their con- native constituents. And um, although there were anonymous, we did, we did get to get like the summary versions and some quotes from those sessions. And one of them particularly struck me as something that I was so upset about. And basically he said, you know, well, I don't really have to worry about na- my native constituents because they don't vote. Um, they don't, we don't really know who they are. Like, we don't understand their issues. Like they're this, this feeling of just like, you know, they, we don't matter. You know, we don't, we don't count. We're not big enough of a community. There's no responsibility that they have. And, um, I was actually glad for that kind of, you know, Frank, uh, you know, report back because, um, what it did for me is to help me to understand why, as we were, you know, in all of these various fights, um why we were not really being paid attention to and um we're trying to push on things anywhere from housing and homelessness to education um and our elected officials don't see us as holding any kind of political power they don't feel responsible to um our community and our conditions in our community and so um you know that that was like the first kind of uh wake up and then you know, over time with organizing in LA, um, I'll give you the example around Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's a timely uh, conversation. So with the whole fight around Indigenous Peoples Day, I honestly thought that it was going to be a pretty open and shut case. Like LA City Council is predominantly made up of people of color from communities that I feel like very connected to that we're all grew up in and raised in. And I just thought it was like a non-issue. Like I was really, really naive to think that. And it took us two and a half years to get this thing passed. Um, and in that course of, and and I'm actually glad for that time frame, because I think if we did like an open and shut victory, it would have been largely symbolic and nothing would have really changed. But the way in the process was just as important as the actual day uh, changing. So Um, What we had to do um, was to educate our city council members about Native issues. And I was honestly shocked. I mean, I shouldn't like, again, I shouldn't be shocked, but I was shocked about how little they knew about Native American people. And so rightly, like, if you don't even know the basics about us, how are you going to serve us as your constituents? How are you going to address the, you know, our communities? Um, And and that, it, I'll say, ignorance didn't only extend to the North American Native community. It very much extended to our relatives that are indigenous from Mexico and Central America. So, you know, LA County has the largest number of Native people of any other county in the country. Um, I would argue that there's the most indigenous peoples of Central America and Mexico as well in, in LA County. <clears throat> yet um our public officials have really no idea and are completely like lost on on our issues so much so that you know and this is one of our ally city council members um we were sitting and talking through you know uh having a meeting a, about this and there were there was a, a member of a land-based tribe in la and there was myself and there was also an indigenous leader from um uh, you know, Mesoamerican communities and um, the city council member uh, whom I love and just it's an indication, I think, more of our system, the systematic erasure of Native and Indigenous peoples that people don't know these things. So I don't always hold the individual like, you know, but, you know, this was like a trusted ally. <clears throat> and he turned to us and said, well, I don't understand why you and you are fighting for Indigenous Peoples Day, but I don't understand you. Like, isn't it like I don't exactly remember the language, but it was like, aren't you like no longer indigenous or like what, you know, like basically like that's totally in the past, you know, talking to indigenous peoples from Mexico and Central America as if like they didn't exist. And I had to step in to say, actually the largest language, sp- indigenous language spoken in the Americas is this Mayan. Like we have the most Mayan speakers of any other, you know, uh, indigenous group. Um, and then that person was just blown away. So, um, I really, you know, see voting in the context of deep organizing work. Um, and it's changing people's understanding of who we are as peoples. It's like, it's a deep, um, you know, work around, um, helping elected officials to, uh, pass legislation that is actually going to help our children, our families and communities. Um, it's really part of, so, you know, um, in Sarah's introduction, she she shared that I have co-founded two organizations, one, the California Native Vote Project and Nationally Advanced Native Political Leadership. Um, and with the California Native Vote Project, what we do is we, we do something called Integrated Voter Engagement, which I'm not sure if you all have heard before. If you, can you raise your hand if you've heard of that before? Okay. A couple people. Yeah. So integrated voter engagement um, is basically the idea that you can't just pop in at the last minute and ask people to vote in the ways that you want them to vote. Um, You actually need, and, and oftentimes what happens is that somebody, you know, hires a crew to come into a community that's not even from that community to just do the job of door knocking or whatever the strategy is to to turn people out to vote or to vote in a certain way. And integrated voter engagement is like the antidote to that. It's not about last minute people, helicoptering in from the outside of the community. Um, It's actually about the um, value system of holding, um, you know, relationships with community all throughout the year and moving on issues that the community cares about. So California Native Vote Project, for example, we are working on an indigenous education uh, campaign, and we run that campaign all throughout the year. Um, We have a youth organizing group, they run throughout the year. Um, So our membership base, we have about 9,000 people in our base throughout the state of California, we're active in 20 counties. Our membership base knows who we are, And they understand our value systems and our vision and what we're about and we're in constant communication with them whether that's email phone text. So we're a trusted messenger. So the idea of integrated voter engagement is basically that you just don't do vote work outside of the context on its own, but you have to do it in the context of community organizing fighting for the issues that are going to support Community wellness and and health. Um, So. In, that's, that's what integrative engagement means. <clears throat> so that when the election cycles come up and we come to our membership base, they're like with us. So it's easier to pick up the phone or send them a text or send them a mailer. They're like, okay, we know who these people are. We trust them. Yes, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna you know, move forward in this way. Um, and I'll say that I learned this strategy from other communities. So there's an organization called Community Coalition in LA, Um, that's in South LA, who's been doing this for a very long time. There's another organization called Inner City Struggle um, in in East LA, uh, who also takes on this strategy. And they have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. (laughs) And we're very new to it, right? We've been doing this for four years. Um, And I really, I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges in our community is that, you know, we are very, a, a very geographically dispersed community. And again, I told you about those assimilation waves and all those different policies. So um, in the 1950s and 60s, the government um, had this uh, program policy called relocation. And so the relocation program based in, in essence was taking people off of reservation communities and bringing them with the uh, promise of economic opportunity. Again, we had like 85, 90% unemployment rates on reservations because we were taking off our traditional ways of subsistence living and forced into this dependency relationship with the government. So lots of our um, grandparents took that up because they wanted to provide for their families. So what would happen is that they would get a one-way bus ticket to these major urban centers um, and the, again, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which used to be the department of war, the Bureau of Indian, Indian Affairs had these satellite offices in cities. And because they saw how other racial ethnic communities were, <clears throat> um, would, would come together to create like neighborhoods. They didn't want that for us. Cause it was a policy around assimilation. They were seeking to Americanize us. So <clears throat> they strategically placed us housing wise in separate areas all throughout. And they did this nationally. So even though L.A. County has the largest urban Indian population in the country, um, we don't have a neighborhood. We don't have an ethnic enclave. We don't have a space. We're just scattered. So um, it makes finding Native people to build political power very, very difficult. And um, I have recently just been so excited about, you know, there's one silver lining in this pandemic for Native organizing is that it forced us to look at digital organizing approaches. So I'll give you an example of how, like, this has helped us to prepare a strategy. Um, The. 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 we, we basically did voter registration and voter education and ask people to join our membership base out in the field, like in community events, powwows, and, and other events. And <clears throat> we register people to vote, we educate them, we, we do base building, they join as members. Through the last, since we started in 2014, no, 2016, um, to now, we had about thirty-five hundred people that we had on our list as members um, that we that joined through a conversation, and that was really hard work. And we we worked. I mean, it sounds like a really small number, but given how dispersed we are and how small our communities are, like that was really really hard, heavy lifting on subsequent like you know continuous years. Well, in this pandemic, we have figured out how to use um, like a digital organizing strategies. So basically, we've realized that, you know, if we create petitions around issues that people care about, we can actually get their contact information. We ask them if they're Native American, and we've been building, we have now the list of 8,000. So over the over the you know, two months, we have found, you know, whatever, my math is horrible, but that many more thousand (laughs) Native American people through a digital strategy. So now I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, this is not just good around voting and political power. This is about community building. This is about, um, Fortifying our traditional indigenous languages. This is about making sure our children understand their culture, like to find Native American people, and it's that just that alone to connect to community is really pushing back against that policy, which was meant to isolate us and were meant to Americanize us. And so we have more ability to find our people through this organizing strategy, through this colonial vote project, right? <laughs> So we're just super excited um, if we've been able to build this base uh, and grow this list in just this short time frame, like what, you know, what, how many people we can eventually get up to. So in the state of California, also the largest population of Native people than any other state in the country, um, there are about a million uh, Native peoples here. Um, And there's 500,000 eligible voters. And that's because we're a very um, young population. So um, we are tending to have a lot of children who are currently ineligible to vote. But um, we, so there's about 500,000 eligible voters. And our um, goal is to have a base of 10% of them. So 50,000 voters. And I always thought that was an impossible number to hit. And now I don't think it's impossible because of this digital strategy. So Um, we're super excited about this. Like we really feel like this is, um, you know, we are growing our political power and, um, yeah. Lots more to say about that. But again, I'll stop there. Just so Saru is helping me to navigate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'm so glad you, you're you talking you're about how hopeful you are. I mean, there are other signs of hope. You mentioned Sharice Davids, also Deb Holland. I mean, it's it's absurd that we've waited this long to have Native American representation in Congress. But do you feel like that is a sign of hope, of changing perspectives, despite all the hate and rhetoric coming from Trump? Do you feel like there's a change in perspective, not only among native peoples but non-native peoples as well towards the native population.
2: I do. I think that um, I think that when people are sh- like understand or and have the opportunity to like come in to see our perspective that that people are very um willing to do that. you know, and I, I've been surprised in some of the campaigns that we have run um, how I thought we were gonna brace for so many trolls. And it's been the opposite. There's been so many allies that are just like, yes, for native people, this is their land. Like I I was prepared for the worst. Like we we um the LA Indian Commission put out a COVID PSA. And um that one I thought was so like American pie. Like there was nothing controversial in it. But oh my god, the trolls, the anti-vaxxers, the disbelievers, like we literally had like thousands of people saying stop putting fear in people and you know all of these things so we were prepared for a lot of blowback as we put out these these kinds of campaigns but i have i'm pretty shocked about how few are really you know negative it's really interesting um but i do i do think that as we're seeing more native women more native leaders in positions of power and um we are getting visibility like we never had before. So the first time ever during the you know Democratic Convention, we saw um, Auntie Deb, as we like to call her, um, Congresswoman Deb Holland, um, provide an address at a really important time slot. And that is so important because we're always included, but we're usually like, you know, at a time where nobody's paying attention or just kind of slotted in. But she was given a prominent speaking role at a very important time and i think that was the democratic party just trying to say like look we're diverse (laughs) you know, (laughs) and finally trying to get that message out there i have a lot of criticisms of the parties i won't get into that um as it pertains to native and indigenous peoples but i think as it pertains to like society and 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 people i think as we start to see more indigenous peoples in positions of power that then it's only going to open up the floodgates for other people then to See and to um, believe that Native people can actually lead. Um, So there was, I did a focus group in New Mexico with um, a number of Native women that went through an eMERGE program, which is to get um, women into elected office. And there was a Native American cohort. And some of the stories that we heard there we're, were both for people who didn't get elected and for people who got elected was so much about how people don't look at Native and Indigenous women and think elected leader. Like people think we're not electable. People do not fund our races early on, which is really important for somebody to be able to to be a contender. And so, you know, the story from the woman who wasn't elected, <clears throat> she was an attorney. She'd worked on all kinds of like, you know, community issues, had a lot of connections, Um, but there was an area that was um, a very wealthy area that, you know, basically determined lots of the, um, the, you know, how elections turned out, and so she went to Doorknock, um, and she said, I, you know, went very presentable, Um, you know, I'm, here I am as the candidate, let's talk about the issues, and she saw, and she said she got very depressed, because very, very soon into that, Experience, she realized that those folks in that community would never give her the time of day because they did not see who she was. They did not see her value systems. They did not see her experience. They did not see all the things that she brought. They only saw a Navajo woman and they were like, no, Navajo woman is not going to be a leader in this area. Um, so that was incredibly defeating for her. And she has gone on to do amazing things. So, um, you know our stories continue but on the flip side um, there was a a state legislator um, named Georgine Lewis who described how it felt to actually get elected so she shared that when she went into the legislators quarters or lounge or whatever you call it within the state capitol that you know she was met by a lot of you know older white men um, who did not look like her. And they basically said, you're in the wrong place. This is for legislators. And, and you know, so she kept getting these, you know, the people thought she was a cleaning lady, people were, you know, questioning her credentials. Um, and uh, we hear this from native and indigenous women all over the country, um, that even when they're elected, they're not given, um, you know, any kind of like respect in that way. Um, so I do believe though that, you know, as we can, so it's it's about who we think we see phenotypically or experience-wise as who can be our leaders, um, and so I think that as we continue to see more and more, it's only going to open up uh, open up those floodgates around the the mental models that we hold about who who are actually leaders in this country.
1: Awesome. I have one more question, that I know there are a lot of people waiting to ask questions, so we'll open it up. But just lastly, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the Native Voice Network and the way in which um, you describe it as mobilizing through indigenous cultural values, exactly what does that mean? Is that also how you're doing the voter engagement through cultural values and and culture? And I would love, if you don't mind, for those that don't know about the Bears Ears Fight for you to talk a little bit about it. Um, And is that at all connected, mobilizing around sacred land, around sacred space? Does that help when it comes to voter engagement and political engagement?
2: yes um absolutely so we we have learned in our organizing that um and, and it's kind it's kind of common sense right it's like we're as as we're trying to move native voters they're not voting to be patriotic or they're not they're not voting for like civic duty or obligation like those kinds of messages don't work with our community we really have to connect it to the things that our community cares about. And um, land and water rights is definitely something I think that all indigenous peoples really share um, as as a deep understanding that um, we have a responsibility to the place that we are at. Um, For many reasons, it's a life, it's gives us life. I mean, straight up that, you know, which I think uh, somehow people lose sight of that. It's just so basic, it's like, it's water people on Navajo Nation right now are fighting for water they're literally like there's a company that all you have to do is put the piping like less than a mile away in order for them to get water and there's like this corporation that's like blocking the community from being able to access it like right now that that battle is going on so like you know For us to be able to connect the reason why to build political power to build native power is for us to make sure that we can, you know, uh, take care of our land and water and take care of our people, take care of our children, take care of our elders like that's all of the indigenous um, Value systems, um, as well as the values that I've shared about about how to organize with each other um, that really, I think, helps to ground um, so there are like various voting campaigns that are like um land rights uh can only be protected if you vote right so very much drawing the connections between um those things and i'll also share that i think a lot of folks that came out of the standing rock movement do folks know what standing rock is yeah so the The Standing Rock movement, um, folks coming out of that
1: fight also recognize that. So do you actually just mind spending 30 seconds? Because I don't know if everybody (laughs) knows that, you know, I don't know where people were at. Some people I bet were in high school in this group. So it'd be good if you could just take a few minutes because it was so pivotal.
2: So right before the last presidential election, which would have been in 2015, um, basically uh, there was a... um, big fight and a big beautiful movement that came as a result of it um, to protect the Stunning Rock Sioux Tribe from being encroached by a pipeline that was going to go right under their only and main source of water. Um, And what we say is uh, that it's not about if a pipeline is gonna burst, it's about when it's gonna burst. So all pipelines end up ruining, uh, bursting and and ruining grounds and, and waters. Um, and the Standing Rock Sioux tribe basically put out a call to other native peoples to say, we need you. They had done all the legal strategies, they had done all of the things, um, but they basically set up an encampment and said, We need all Native people. They put out an alert. Um, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful, t- you know, every day is a good day to be indigenous, but you know, it was such a beautiful movement. And um, I think it really, you know, stirred so much. Um love um, and and action in our community. Uh, So I I don't know how many people at its height uh, were actually occupying that space. Um, But it was definitely a um, an encampment that was uh, predicated on a spiritual responsibility to the land and the water. And um, it also revived like traditional um, ways of being amongst the Lakota people um, in that space. So it was very much, um, you know, a spiritual movement. Um, Dave Archimbal, who was the chair of the tribe at that time, um, really talked about pipelines as um, being a snake and that, you know, we cut the head of this one snake off, but this snake has many heads. And so native and indigenous peoples are fighting pipeline development all across the Turtle Island. Um, and. Um, so, but what, what came out of that movement, though, was a recognition that the people who are making these decisions are actually not people who are holding our same value systems. And so uh, out of that movement, there came a lot of folks who recognized, like, I need to run for office. I actually need to be in these positions of power. It's not enough for us to do direct action, although that's a critical tactic. Like, we actually need to be occupying these positions so we have a say and we can fight from within. And we saw lots of people deciding to run for office. We We saw people who are predominantly direct action organizers starting to come into the electoral space to think about building power differently which is so exciting for me because again, I'm a believer that these two things are are connected um, and they feed off of each other. And um, at least that's what I'm experiencing in my organizing work. Um, so, you know, I I think that um, as we continue to like have these victories that people are going to see that, that this is a powerful strategy. I mean, I don't know what the alternative is. Like a lot of um, crit- critics or, you know, people within our community that say, like, why are you participating in this colonial system? And um, I don't know what the alternative is. Like, we live in this colonial system, (laughs) sadly. It is a colonial system. And um, I don't, I'm fighting for our community, and these are the tools that I have to fight. So I'm not going to, like, not use a tool or a strategy uh, if it's going to help our people.
1: All right. I'm going to shut up and let Professor Cohen uh, start Inviting students who've been raising their hands to ask questions.
0: Yeah, thank you, uh, Christy. My name's uh, Michael Marco, and I'm Sarah's co- professor. Thank you so much for being here. It's a real honor and a privilege to have you. Um, I had a, just a quick question of my own that I wanted, and then we'll draw students in. The first of it is, I, you know, your discussion about native peoples in Los Angeles was really a revelation, I think, and uh, it reminded me of this 1961 movie called *The Exiles* by Kent McKenzie, which is actually about the indigenous community in Bunker Hill. Um, that Bunker Hill used to be a, a native uh, community before it was bulldozed to, to build, you know, a, a Disneyland in downtown Los Angeles. So that, it, it, all the things that you were saying really helped me reflect or made me think about the power of that movie about urban Indians in Los Angeles. It was really great. Uh, I mean, uh, a recent rediscovery cinematically. But what I wanted to ask you specifically about, and if you've seen the movie, like, please feel free to comment on it. Um, but but, um, but what I wanted to ask you in particular was, um, something we were trying to articulate earlier in this class, which is why is it that after the, the murder of George Floyd and the, the, out, the this massive uprising, uh, Black Lives Matter protests that we quickly turned and in, in really moving scenes particularly in Minnesota to tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus. And I'm wondering if you could, um, from your perspective help us understand and articulate that what is at stake in the relationship between Black Lives Matter and the indigenous rights movements and how you go from protesting the murder of of a black man in minnesota to tearing down statues of christopher columbus
2: well <clears throat> first of all the whole bunker hill issue i will say that my grandparents lived up bunk- in bunker hill
0: <laughs>
2: when they came over during the relocation wave so um i think lots of us have like grandparents that have like roots in that area um and so yeah uh, I don't have more to comment about the movie, but um, just to say, like, it's part of our own family oral history, um, that place. Um, but with regard to, you know, the the mass movement that has happened, um, I think, you know, it's not dissimilar to what happened in the 60s. So when you looked at like the Black Power movement, the Chicano movement. I think that those movements are all connected because we also see then that like the American Indian movement was really catalyzed and inspired by, by that as well. So I think this just goes to show how connected we are and how connected our movements are. Um, I think that you know for us to see people unmonumenting and pulling down racist statues, I, I don't think it was just Columbus, I think it was Confederate statues as well. Um, so I think that you know there's an a, there's you know a new awakening um, and that people have just had it. I think that the uh, the 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 waters of hate that we're swimming in around the overt white supremacy in the White House. Um, I think that you know it has uh, propelled people to to not go through the usual systems, but actually just take it. Uh, within their own power to actually pull down these things. And while they're largely symbolic, it's something, a physical act um, that actually feels really great. We actually unmonumented um, a statue of um, the uh, Junipero Serra. I don't know if you you folks know who that is, but you know, a lot of people lift him up as a, uh, well, he's actually a saint in the Catholic church now. Um, but for California Indians, like he represents the Columbus of California. He, he represents um, genocide and uh, forced labor camps, uh, slavery, uh, like lots of abuse against women and children. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really powerful to, to pull that down at the time, but it, it was done within this whole movement wave of saying we've had enough. So as we're marching for black lives, um, that we are uh, sophisticated and smart and we're a large movement and 40 million people came out to, to March. Um, so it's like, while we're doing this, we can also do that. <laughs> like it doesn't, you know, I feel like it's like, you, if you look at white supremacy and oppression, it it, it attacks, attacks everyone at one time and we got to attack it back all together at one time. It's not one at a time. (laughs) So for me, I have a lot, so much love and, and appreciation, um, for, um, my sisters who are leaders of, um, the movement for black lives and black lives matter. Um, and I definitely like, you know, we we're connected and uh, we have relationships with each other and they push me forward and inspire me and move me. So, um, you know, I, I just feel like our, you know, our, our collective liberation is really embedded together. I mean, in 50 years, we're going to see a quote unquote new majority, you know? Right. And so I feel like we're at a time where we really need to think about, um, how are we going to work together? Like, what are we, what are we looking to build together and really have this like aspirational, hopeful, like creative dream of of what we want to create collectively Um, and not let this hatred and honestly, the the, what is the minority and will continue to be even a smaller minority to not let that, um, you know, reaction take up our creativity and our joy and our our ability to dream and to create something new because this shit is not working for us it's not working for anyone so um that's what gives me a lot of um you know hope and strength and i think people are hungry for that i think you know there's so much chaos and hate and all these things it's like we're we need to lean into the into the creativity and the joy and and the vision that we have for collective liberation
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. That was really inspiring. Wonderful. I'm going to turn to the students now and ask them to unmute themselves and ask a question.
3: Hi. Um,
2: First of all, thank you so much that it's been so inspiring. And um, I guess my question was sort of, what's the, um, could you expand a little bit more on how the indigenous movement sort of connects to um, efforts for environmental justice? Absolutely. So environmental justice is not my area of expertise and I have not directly organized it. I've been organized to support it, but um, it's not, it's not my area. Um, And I, I I, like, I hesitate on this one a little bit because I think that um, the master narrative, um, if, I don't know if you saw these seventies commercials, but like we're very much put into these stereotypes as native and indigenous peoples. And while we very much are part and, and in lots of ways, leading the environmental justice movement, um, I think that like my, a little bit of the fear and trepidation is that, um, you know, people, I think in our society are, we also hold this idea of like, you know, native peoples and mother earth and this kind of, um, would you say like, a romanticized way, right? <laughs> so, um, but I will say that, you know, I have such deep respect for organizers that are Native, that are working in the environmental justice space, and um, and who have been able to really transform that space, and um, to get a lot of the non-Native organizations and leaders that um, I think in they have a lot of the investments from philanthropy and such to get them to understand how native people need to lead the way in that movement. And so, you know, at the marches, uh, you know, being recognized and uh, in these like climate uh, justice actions for native people and just people to lead those marches, <clears throat> not only physically, right. But like, we want to be part of, the major part of the strategy development and like all up and down like all of the various roles Um, and um, and that our people have been fighting for this since contact right this isn't like a new thing that has just happened but we have generations and generations and generations of our people um, that have been like in these sprites for for the long haul Um, so yeah, I guess uh, that's that's what I would share about that question.
3: Yeah.
0: Great. So let's go to then our next question.
3: Okay. Hi. Thank you so much um, for everything you said. I
1: feel like there was so much sincerity, and um, it really resonated. Um, so I guess my question is a two-part question, but it's that do you you were mentioning
3: about um, like colonialism? So do you feel like the oppression that Native peoples have, um, have endured has a
1: connection to capitalism. Um, and then you also mentioned that you have to work the system and that, you know, you live um, under our society and there's only so much you can do. So taking that into account, what can we do um, under our current system to help Indigenous people um,
3: thrive?
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. So yes, I think that both capitalism and patriarchy are, you know, the, what has occurred since colonialism and genocide has happened. I I very much believe that um, prior to, it's kind of hard for us to imagine like a world different than ours, but I think because we're going back to the way our traditional societies were structured, um, but they were not capitalistic and they were not patriarchal. And so it's maybe easier for us to like make that shift of like understanding how these systems have encroached upon us. Um, but I, um, as far as the question, about what what folks can do to be good allies with indigenous peoples. I think there are many things but some of the first things that come to mind are one um, to really see yourselves as as responsible um, for not only knowing but in some way contributing to the indigenous peoples whose lands that you're on. And many people do not know (laughs) the lands that they're on let alone have some kind of feeling of responsibility or relationship with those peoples. So that would be my first thing um, for to say, um, and the second thing would be to you know take responsibility for your own education around the history that this country has had with Native American people, and that's that's more difficult. Um, you know, it would involve people like uh, independently going out reading um, or you know learning in other ways. But I this this uh, educational system is very very intentionally excludes uh native peoples from the curriculum. So you're not gonna get that on your own unless you actively seek it out. And um, you know what we say is that we um we are, we are constantly in a state of microaggression as native people because we constantly have to tell people what our history is. Um, we constantly have to educate people about our issues because we are you know intentionally erased and not part of the educational system. So I think that um, the natives, uh, they they, were, they did this big national study and they found that um, I think it was somewhere about 65% of Americans um, didn't know whether Native Americans still existed or not. And then they found that 25 states um, like had no in native no mention of Native Americans whatsoever in their curriculum from prek to pre-K to 12th grade. And um, those that did have a mention that um, there was no mention of Native Americans after 1900. So our educational systems continue to like, um, you know, put this myth out there that we are of the past, we're people of the past, but not about anything contemporary of the future. So there's, I taught American Indian studies uh, 101 at UCLA, like as a TA. Um, and I, the first thing that I did, I did it a couple quarters, uh, is to open up to whatever questions that people had. People had such basic questions, um, even about just our mere existence, right? So um, I would say that those two things would be the, the most powerful. And then if you wanted to, like, really get involved and help with organizing and volunteering, like, Uh, There's a whole bunch of things that I can share with you um, if you wanted to engage in that deeper way. But I I would start with your own kind of conscious, you know, understanding of native and indigenous peoples and issues. Thank you for asking that.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, While I'm, you know, on the, and Chrissy I'll ask you to add to the bibliography, but I would offer this book. Uh, This is Nick Estes, Our History is the Future, which starts with the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, struggle and offers an entire history of uh, Lakota resistance to, Uh, Settler colonialism in North America. Um, Roxanne Dunbar's Ortiz and indigenous people's history of the United States. Uh, This is a comprehensive history of settler colonialism and native resistance in the US. And then if you're interested in the history of Columbus Day, um, I offer you this uh, Michelle Rolfe trios silencing the past. He's a, a Haitian historian. Uh, who writes very eloquently about the history of the Haitian Revolution. But there's two great chapters in here about the the, the long, detailed history of how Columbus Day became a holiday. Uh, so these are three uh, books that I would offer just as good intro works that anyone can read and understand to help get a, a deeper base in Native American history and its contemporary politics. Uh, Christy, do you want to add anything to that uh, reading list?
2: Yes, I would just say that um, that Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz book also has a young adult version. So if you want to help your young uh, people in your life to also understand, to not have to get to Berkeley to start to <laughs> get that, that's how I felt. Like I went to uh, UCLA American Indian Studies graduate program and I was pissed. I was like, why do I have to come to graduate school to learn my history? Like Why did nobody tell me these things? So the younger you can push that down, like the better. So, you know, that that young adult version is, is fantastic. My sixth, seventh, and eighth grade nieces and nephews um, have copies of those.
0: <laughs> for your younger brothers and sisters out there. Like, yes. <laughs> uh, thank you for that, no, that's great. All right, uh, let's on to another uh, student question.
3: Hi, thank you so much um, for being here. This has been super interesting. Uh, my question It basically comes from the idea that colonize and decolonize has kind of made its way into social justice vernacular, such as people saying that education or academia is a colonized space. But there's been a lot of uh, pushback against this as well, namely the paper decolonization is not a metaphor, which is kind of where my question comes from. So how do we honor the native experience while also addressing the impact that colonialism and racism has had on spaces like education and academia? So I
2: have I have to, I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what do you think, like, what would your response to that be?
3: I think it's important to address the impact of colonialism on education. But again, I think colonized is such a specific word. And that's kind of the thesis of the paper is that it's specifically to address the impact that the Native people faced. And so I think it's it's just like, we can't just co-opt other people's words. And I think it's being co-opted at large by namely, white people who are using it and just throwing around the term without kind of understanding the heaviness that it has. Um, I don't know if there's a better word to use, which is kind of why this question is, where this question comes from.
2: Mm, Yeah. I mean, for me, like the, the, the idea that allowed colonialism to happen is white supremacy. And so for me, it's like attacking white supremacy. You know, is is a good start um, for non-native folks, I believe, because it really it, it it covers like so much in 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 that, and really kind of attacks that kind of root idea at the core, which is like we're we're in a battle around ideas and value systems that then like matriculate to a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but it's interesting, like the word colonization and decolonize. Um, I'll say that I'll. I've struggled with it a little bit because I'm like, what does that really mean? You know, but for me, I was in a, an organizing retreat with several native organizers and we were talking about how to decolonize organizing because organizing one of our elders pointed out to us, um, there are a lot of militaristic terms in organizing. Who is our target? Um, You know, the opposition, like, they, our elders shared, shared, like, those things are very violent in and of themselves. And so um, we were having this meeting about how do we indigenize uh, our organizing and, um, and, and how to, what does this decolonize mean? And so we left that meeting um, with the agreement that what it means is going back to our original instructions, um, so I honestly don't use the word decolonize a whole lot, but I think about uh, it in the context of our original teachings around our value systems, around our languages, around our cultures, um, that you know, if we are honoring and holding true to those things, um, that in essence is de- decolonial. Um so that that's kind of where I sit with it.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Um next question.
3: Hi, um, so my question was kind of about um, governance in Native nations. So it was how do indigenous values manifest themselves in governance within Native nations? And what can U.S. institutions and political leaders learn from this different style of governance?
2: So there are you know, about 600 um, federally recognized tribes in the now called U.S. And there are thousands of um, either state or unrecognized tribes um, as well. And so there's a really, really big diversity of what tribal government systems actually look like. Um, And I would also say that, um, you know, again, one of these assimilation policies, uh, one of them was the uh, 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, which was very, very harmful um, of um, Native peoples and and traditional forms of governance, because what it did is it basically um, brought boilerplate uh, constitutional language uh, to each tribe and had them adopt a constitution that uh, mirrored the US constitution in lots of ways. Um, And then the ways that they got us to um, quote unquote approve those constitutions um, was super shady. So, I mean, like, it was a farce basically. They were not really, they were really not voting mechanisms to put that in place. And what happened is that um, our traditional forms of governance and leadership were all of a sudden um, at odds with this new uh, government structure that was created. So even in our tribal government systems, although we, we really, you know, respect and and uphold them as systems that are holding our our, our tribe, tri- nation's tribal sovereignty. Um, even the tribal governments themselves have been uh, you know a, a product of that kind of colonial um, assimilative um, effort. Um, so you know what I what I do see in our tribes is that um, Our peoples are incredibly resilient and are utilizing structures that really don't work for us in the best ways possible. Um, But I think, uh, you know, our tribes are so underinvested in um, that uh, they're, you know, potentially, like, don't even have the resources or infrastructure to be able to do all the things that they want to be able to do for a citizenry. Um, And that is um, nominally... uh, changed by some of the gaming gains that we have made. So there are examples of, you know, um, communities and tribal governments that are, are just doing phenomenally and have been able to diversify economically. And, um, you know, that has given them resources to um, bring back their languages, uh, to make sure that our cultures are live and active. And so we see those examples, but um, those even, you know, it's popular perception that we Lots of Native nations have gaming, but it's actually a very few, um, and then even fewer than that, that are actually financially successful. Um, so, you know, I guess my, my short answer is that it really, really depends on each tribal nation. Like, there's really not a way, like, they're not a homogenous um, as, as far as tribal governments are concerned.
0: Great. Uh Saro, do you wanna just wrap yeah, up? Yeah,
1: I Chrissy, I wanna be conscious of time because I had asked you to stay till eleven thirty and I assume you have to to go. We we do have class till twelve, so if you had a few more minutes, we'll we'll love to have you, but I wanna be respectful of your time. Thank, Thank you so you. much for I
2: talking. have lots of IPD stuff going on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, i we so appreciate your time and your inspiration. Do you wanna I mean, you've been so, you have such an amazingly hopeful perspective. Do you want to leave us with any uh, thoughts about kind of what keeps you going and hopeful in this moment?
2: Yeah, it's the love of our people. And it's actually, you know, the connection that we have to our community that keeps us moving along. And, um, you know, even in virtual spaces like this, like the head nods, the the energy that you're giving back also like gives me energy too. So even though this felt like a very one way, like, you know, I appreciate all of the kind of love and acceptance and the yeses, like, that actually really helps me. And, you know, the spaces where I feel like my cup is filled again. Um, so, you know, it's just love of our people and connection that really keeps me going. So Thank we'll
1: you. All of us going. Thank you so much. Pussy. really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Lots of students are joining me and saying thank you.
2: Happy
1: thank, <laughs> thank you. Congratulations, <laughs> people's day to you.
2: Thank you. Bye bye.
1: Great. Well, that was, um, I knew it would be uh, so on point, um, but it was so incredibly on point with things that we've been talking about throughout the class and even, This unit on social movements. Um, So I do want to allow for more questions and conversation about the things she said, but I thought I'd throw in a little bit. um, She mentioned this thing called integrated voter engagement, which in the field we called IVE. And I did just want to throw in a little bit about the relationship between social movement organizing and voter engagement. She talked about it at length. And then we can talk both about that and about your more thoughts and questions about the things that she raised in particular, if that's okay, unless Professor Konya had something else you wanted to raise before we transition. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. Um, those of you that were in my social movements class will, will remember hearing about this, but um, there's been a real huge shift in the organizing world over the last couple of years. Um, Prior to, I'm gonna, actually, before I share, let me just say this so you don't get distracted. Prior to um, 2016, there was a real genuine, um, you know, I will say, distrust and dislike between the voter and civic engagement, political engagement world, frankly, largely very much controlled by the Democratic Party and organizations that were somehow tied to the Democratic Party and the organizing world. Um, There was this, you know, uh, sense among the organizing world that people engaged in political work, voter engagement were very transactional. And what that means is they would come into a community, as Chrissy mentioned, often from outside, say, vote, 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 you've got to vote. Um, There would be a lot of talk about, like, why do people not vote? What's wrong with them? And then leave and then up and leave. And they wouldn't hire people from the community. Um, They wouldn't talk to people who they thought were unlikely to vote. Um, and, and, and on the other side, there was also a lot of dismissal by that world of the organizing world. The organizing world thought the political world was transactional, was using communities would come in and out, was focused only on voting and not on organizing. And the political world for its side saw the organizing world as very, um, small, you know, couldn't reach the kinds of numbers that the political world could reach, not at scale, Uh, you know, unable to really kind of hold power, political power. And so there was a real distrust and uh, inability to kind of work together. There were huge exceptions. So Chrissy mentioned community coalition in LA, which led the work on integrated voter engagement, the idea that you can integrate social movement organizing and voter engagement. Uh, That's really what that is, make it year round. So you know, I'm talking at a, very, at a very sort of black and white, unnuanced level, but there was this large distrust. Chrissy mentioned she felt that way. That's certainly how I grew up for many years in the organizing world, just complete distrust of the political world and vice versa. But 2016 really changed everything because there was such an understanding that what happened in 2016 demonstrated the failure of traditional political work, traditional voter work. Um, So first to understand kind of the differences, it's really important to understand how, you know, people again use organizing in this very broad way. Some people think of organizing as political work. When When I hire people and I say you need to have organizing experience, people will say, yes, well, I work for this political campaign and this political campaign, and it's not the same. The goal of our electoral work is to win a candidate. It's a candidate campaign. You're not creating members. You're not developing a permanent base of people to win an issue and build power over the long term. You've got a finite timeline, which is an election. You're trying to win a campaign. The goal of organizing, as I've said multiple times now, is not actually just winning an issue in a particular election cycle or with a finite timeline. You are trying to build a long-term permanent base of power, collective power. And, and remember that spiral. Every issue you're fighting for is growing the spiral, is growing the number of people engaged, is growing your political power. That is not how electoral work has traditionally operated. It's not to build the power of people. It's to build the power of a party or to build the power of candidates, it's not to build the power of people. And organizing work can keep going forever, way past winning a vote. They'll be around, they'll be connected to their community. um, They'll be around to implement a vote or a win, not just to win it. Whereas electoral work really just is around for that one timeline. And it really involves, as I've talked about with you before, one role, which is voting. There's only one role for people in in electoral work, which is voting. Yes, people can become volunteers, they can get other people engaged, but ultimately everybody's engaged around one type of democratic engagement, which is voting. Whereas in organizing, people's leadership can take on many roles. It can be leading marches, as she talked about, having indigenous people lead climate marches, be a part of developing strategy for marches. It can be um, figure out how you're going to take on particular elected officials. It can be designing what you're fighting for, not just how, but what you're fighting for. So the people themselves can define leadership in so many different ways and organizing in a way, in ways that it, it just doesn't work in the electoral space, or it hasn't, at least traditionally in the way that was really led by the Democratic Party in the past. Um, But on the other hand, many of us over many decades have realized in the organizing world that obviously we can't do without voting. Voting has to be an integral part of our organizing work, but we have to recognize it as one tool of many. There's voting, then there's mobilization, then there's targeting elected officials, then there's, you know, communications work. There's so many different ways to organize, mobilize, lift up people's collective voice and power and voting and and electoral campaigns is just one piece of that, but it's obviously a necessary piece because in order to win, we have to get people elected who will actually uh, vote on our issues that we're trying to get past. But also demonstrating our power involves not only getting people elected, but holding them accountable, getting people out of office if they don't vote in favor of an issue that the people want. Um, So both getting people into office and out of office is a critical part of demonstrating our power, not the only way that we demonstrate our power, right? Hopefully this year has shown us that people can demonstrate power in a million different ways, and they have, without even voting people in or out. But it is one critical way. Um, And especially when electoral campaigns do it right, when they are about elevating social movements, issues and people power, not just a candidate. They can be a useful tool in an organizing campaign or social movement. So when social movement organizations integrate a campaign, electoral campaign with organizing, that's what we call IVE or integrated voter engagement. When the organizing and around issues around people power is connected to getting certain people into office to win those issues, to elevate people's power or to get people out to demonstrate our power that we can hold people accountable Um, And co-governance, you know, co-governance now is defined in so many different ways, just like organizing. There's a whole theory and literature now around co-governance. But one way in which our field is is increasingly defining co-governance is this idea that, in fact, social movement organizations can actually nominate their own people Uh, into elected office and then actually co-govern with them, meaning that the elected official has a coalition of social women organizations that they're working with on every decision, on every issue, that they are actually deciding together on a whole slate of issues, on a whole platform of issues, Um, not just just on particular issues. So co-governance is increasingly kind of a vision that a lot of left organizations and coalitions are looking at, not just get our people elected, but then hold them both accountable and stay with them, be the wind behind their back and at their side as they make decisions on all issues. So that's the vision and the dream. Um, But the, the challenges that that has faced with traditional electoral work, was that traditional electoral work, again, leading up to 2016, was focused only on likely voters, assumed there was this only one vehicle, which is voting for engagement, saw the end goal as an election, um, contacted voters at most only every two to four years. There was no communication or relationship building of the kind that Chrissy talked about, building our community. None of that happened with traditional electoral work. And so that really led to just Damaging, devastating problems in 2016. And I'm sure everybody here has a lot to say about what went wrong in 2016, so many things. Um, (laughs) But uh, from the organizing perspective or the social movement perspective, or for people who were working with low-income communities or communities of color around the country, the perspective was, you know, this was coming. This is sort of chickens coming home to roost because you've ignored tens of millions of people for so long, assuming they were unlikely voters, assuming they were not worth talking to, assuming that their issues didn't matter, um, that when they didn't vote, or in some cases they voted against their own interests, you said, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Um, But there was a real, I will say there was a real reckoning in 20, after 2016, the Democratic Party uh, really did begin to think differently, or at least many organizations that huge, you know, there's, um, you should know, there's a huge machine on the Democratic side of massive, very, very wealthy donors who support lots of voter work um, on the Democratic side. It's not just that they support the Democratic Party or Democratic candidates. There are very large organizations that large donors support. For example, there's a network of very wealthy donors called the Democracy Alliance. This is um, high net worth donors that support organizations, mostly on the left, doing voter engagement, political engagement, from unions to uh, groups like Indivisibles or the Center for Popular Democracy. even color of change get i've gotten funding from people in the democracy alliance but uh prior to 2016 a lot of those high net worth donors convinced by democratic pundits and consultants were focused on uh again likely voters in likely states and counties um not being very you know i told you before that the wisdom of those political consultants is don't talk about race Don't talk about gender. Don't say the words women. (laughs) These things are third rail, they would say. That was the advice. Um, And just so much uh, proved that all of that was so wrong in 2016. So I told you already about one example of us that after 2016, when I approached Amanda Renteria, um, political director, campaign field director for, uh, for Hillary Clinton, and I said, I'm sitting on 13 million people who don't vote. Um, I know the issue that's going to motivate them. And they said, well, we don't know. We need to see polling to see if this actually would motivate uh, voters. Um, And so we said, we set out to prove them wrong. And so we said, this is a population, mostly women, mostly single mothers, 40% under the age of 24 don't vote 12% voter turnout rate. Um, And, you know, we know that the way to talk to them is not just to go knock on their door from somebody outside their community and say, vote, vote, you should vote. It's good for you, vote. (laughs) Um, But rather to have their peers talk to them about the issue that matters to them the most, which is their wages. And so we put the issue of one fair wage on the ballot. I explained some of this before, um, and we we, we, we succeeded in getting enough signatures to put it on the ballot for November, 2018. And then the Republicans took it off the ballot um, and said, we're going to make this law because they understood something the Democrats didn't, which is that this would mobilize a lot of low wage voters, a lot of women, a lot of people of color. And so they passed it. But when they did, they said, we are doing this to keep people from voting. We promise to keep uh, to gut this after the election, Um, after so in November 2018, their plan was let the election happen. And then we promise to decrease the wage back from 12 back down to three dollars. So, um, we mobilized about 5,000 worker leaders to talk to about 17,000 of their peers, peer to peer voter engagement. We also reached another 80,000 voters of color through peer to peer voter engagement, all focused on this issue, all about building this base of voters, as Chrissy said, not just for now, not just for November 2018, but for afterward to actually win the issue. And although they did roll back, we were able to immediately sign up hundreds of new members and mobilize people right after the election on the uh, on the state house, which to us was so much more important than um, than the actual election. The election was amazing. We had the highest midterm turnout. We increased youth voter turnout two to four percent, with three percent voter turnout increase among the whole population three hundred percent, excuse me, from twelve percent to thirty eight percent. Voter turnout increase in 2018. And of course we won friends in the governor and secretary of state, attorney general. And as you know, the governor's been recently um, <laughs> a, a, a victim of, of a, an attempted adult napping um, by a militia, the, the, what were they, the, the Wolverine Watchmen? The Watchmen Wolver, Wolverines, is that right? Um, and uh, but we we were a big part of getting Governor Whitmer elected, and also the Secretary of State, Dana Nessel, who's been on the TV a lot talking about this attempted adult napping of Governor Whitmer. But we, you know, we were very much a part of that. She recognized that the Democratic Party in Michigan stated pretty publicly we couldn't have won without restaurant workers, and we've recognized our mistake. So to their credit, I think they have realized that the way they were doing things before was not uh, working that um, again, going after unlikely voters once every two or four, two to four years, uh, ignoring large parts of the population, not building so this work is now called you know you could call it IVE integrated voter engagement or relational voter engagement it's essentially using organizing the, the theory and practice of developing leaders who reach out to their peers, using organizing in the context of voter engagement, relational voter engagement. But I do have a warning, which is that now a lot of the party is seeing relational voter engagement or organizing in the case of in the in the in the work of voter engagement as the new hot thing. All the democracy alliance and high net worth donors are talking about relational voter engagement, relational voter engagement. But the way that they're thinking about it and talking about it is how to turn people out November 3rd. How do we turn people out November 3rd? And what I have been saying over and over again is if that continues to be the only outcome, we turn out all these millions of native people and people of color and low wage workers to vote because we're now focused on them and their issues and we're using a different methodology, relational voter engagement. But then our party gets into office or the Democratic Party, you know, depending on your party, gets into office and they don't deliver. They don't raise wages. They don't save the Bears Ears Monument or stop the pipelines. They don't do the things that people turned out to vote them on and that they were talked to about by the party. If they don't deliver or hear when we're trying to hold them accountable afterwards, I can guarantee you those millions of people who we got engaged in this election will feel so disillusioned, more disillusioned than they were before and not come back to us. Um, The idea of relational voter engagement has gained ground. What hasn't gained ground is the idea that the outcome is not just November 3rd. It's continuing to fight after November 3rd to win the things that people were promised and talked to about. That is the part of voter engagement that has not yet shifted in the political landscape. So... um, I just did want, I mean, we could talk a lot more about what is IVE, what is relational voter engagement, but that, that, is, that is how people like Chrissy and I and other people in the field are seeing organizing as increasingly connected to voter engagement uh, and a potential path forward if it's done the right way. So I'll stop there.
0: No, that's great. Um, that's, that's very helpful. I mean, I, there's a number of things that but one that we think about is that the, the, these are the lessons of 2016, to be sure, but there's also the lessons from 2008, in which Barack Obama built this enormous kind of social movement behind him, you know, you know, taking all the social movement slogans, yes, we can, and all of these, and turning that into a social movement. And then as soon as he got himself into office, he just switched it off. He's like, like, we got this social movement that got me elected. Now just turn it off.
1: Well, and- but, you know, to, I will say, I'm Professor Cohen, we also, we switched it off. Like, I'm not me, but a lot of people on the left also just said, oh, we're done. We got Barack Obama elected. We're crying. We're screaming in the streets. And we're done. We're going to bed. <laughs> not. We are now going to hold our man accountable or give him the wind that we need to win, you know?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. The, I think the that you also get that of these kinds of the billionaire class that fund our elections, they, they, t- they also, they, they want to go for what they think of swing voters in part because they, they tend to be political moderates. So they don't actually, are not going to demand much in the way of, of change. And when you target a swing voter, it's a twofer. You're taking a vote away from your opponent and bringing it to your side. Whereas it takes a lot more effort to go find a new voter. And when you may put that effort in, you're only getting one. And so that there's a kind of logic, again, shaped by the winner-take-all system that makes it much harder to do exactly the necessary work that Sorrow here is talking about. Um, the last thing I would say about the Michigan militia, really briefly, I mean, you did bring this up about Gret- Gretchen Whitmer and the stumbling over language of is it a kidnapping? Right, obviously she's an adult, it's not kidnapping. But more importantly, I mean, what we're talking about is an assassination attempt. They intended to to abduct and kill her. Like this was not that this was an a This was a terrorist attack and a a planned attempted terrorist attack on the governor of Michigan and her entire uh, body of leadership. So to to euphemize it and you're you're searching for the language. You're like, but to euphemize it as a kidnapping is really to undermine what's at stake here. Because let's not forget that the Michigan militias have a long and detailed history and the single one of the singular members of which was Timothy McVeigh the man responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing, the single greatest domestic terrorist attack in U.S. history. And Timothy McVeigh was part of and deliberately connected to white power movements. And so when they talk about militias, what we're talking about is a white power movement. McVeigh was, in the 90s, deliberately divorced from the white power movement. He was seen as a kind of lone nut assassin, kind of a terrorist guy. None of that was true. He was deeply embedded in the white power movement. In fact, he'd been traveling the gun show circuit, selling copies of the right wing, the, the neo-Nazi novel, The Turner Diaries. Uh, and in fact, the attack was based on a specific page in. He was arrested with a copy of this book next to him that showed him how to build an ammonium nitrate fertilizer bomb and and blow up a federal building. So these... The euphemisms around militias and kidnapping is exceedingly dangerous. These are terrorists um, seeking to murder uh, the elected governor of Michigan. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, like, I, that's, a, that's a huge story, though. Like that. Yeah,
1: a few months ago, we actually did a, a virtual town hall with thousands of unemployed restaurant workers and Governor Whitmer. She did it from home, and she throughout the town hall had to keep saying these you know hundreds of people with guns are on my front lawn and i'm gonna have to go in a few minutes to like to find safety with my children because they're out on my front lawn throughout the entire town hall so they've been after her at her home at her vacation home for since since the pandemic started
0: yeah let's just call that what that is that's terrorism that's terrorism um all right. Uh, I mean, great stuff. What questions do you have for Saru about relational voter and, the, and social movements of, uh, and their relationship to election? Uh, Vivek, do you have a question?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Professor. I was just curious
0: about how the methods of integrated voter engagement begin. Like, does it begin with peer-to-peer conversations or does it start with, like, community-oriented training? Like, how do you begin
4: getting people who aren't likely to cast their ballots to actually go out to vote?
1: So the groups doing IVE, and for those of you in the Bay Area, a really amazing group that's doing this and has been doing it, you know, copy, you know, not copying, I'm sorry, learning from Community Coalition in LA, because we're all in relationship with each other, is APEN, Asian Pacific Environmental Network in Richmond and and Oakland, um, you know, they they're doing this. But so the thing to know about IVE is you, you can't start it just on your own with a group of people. IVE is done by groups that have been doing community organizing for a long time already. So they have bases of people. And the the thing I didn't mention is that you know, I, I hope I did. Obviously, I, I have a bias. I come from the organizing space. We all saw the political world in a certain way. But the thing we knew they had that we never had and that they looked down on us with is scale. They were able to reach, you know, millions of voters. We were able to reach thousands of people in our communities because organizing is hard, labor intensive work. Relationship building is so, takes so much longer than telling somebody to vote. Um, so it's important to note that a lot of these groups had been doing the, the work of community organizing at a much smaller scale for many, many years. Then they started to integrate voter engagement into their community organizing. So they were already talking to people about, you know, toxic waste sites or um, a community uh, benefits agreement against DreamWorks, which was building a, uh, you know, a studio in L.A. Or they were already having campaigns on issues in their communities and then they would start to integrate voter engagement into that or organizing work and the voter engagement they were able to do at much larger scale because you know they were having deep relationships with thousands of people and then those thousands of people would lead them to tens of thousands of more that they could have lighter touch relationships with or that they could get their leaders who they had deep relationships with to have those relationships with others. So I just want to say, IVE and relational voter engagement, you you need to start from somewhere. You need to start from a base of people that's already organizing around issues, that understands what their base cares about and is moved by. So Chrissy had the perfect example. Her communities care deeply about land and water. They already knew that. They've been engaging their communities for generations on those issues so they knew that if they were to talk about voting they couldn't do it by saying vote for this candidate or we all should vote just cuz it's the right thing to do or even with this esoteric you know we need political power so let's vote it was talking about voting in the context of those issues and those relationships they had built over over many years so to answer your question it starts from the community organizing rather than the voter work starting and then building the community organizing it's the community organizing first and the voter work built into that
0: great okay thank you let's uh go ahead dominic go ahead
4: so uh hi professor yeah i had a question um i come from san diego and it's a very interesting area because it has these pockets of little kind of townships right and uh in my township where i came from in pacific beach we have a town council which is just another 503c uh sort of corporation And I ran and was elected for the board of directors for that town council. And effectively, what we had was we had access to a person from the mayor's office, a person from our state senate, a person from our assembly, all these different areas. But we didn't have a specific focus. I found that this was unique to San Diego. And I'm wondering, do you think that this is a good way to build a coalition from the ground up just starting in a neighborhood with a 503C or something like that?
1: Yeah, I'm a little confused. So you, this was an elected office or, or kind of semi or quasi elected?
4: So we, we, the, the entire purpose of this organization is to focus concerns for the neighborhood and have access to your elected officials. So that can mean anything from like beautification, ecosystem concerns, uh, concerns with um, uh, homeless individuals or or safety, whatever it is that's going on in that neighborhood, we provided an outlet for our community to come and talk to our elected officials um, without always taking a standpoint. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. Last semester, we did a intensive seminar with a group of graduate students around this idea of co-governance, which I mentioned, this idea that you know, the way I look at co-governance, it's uh, it's social movement organizations running some, somebody from their own, you know, uh, and then co-governing. But other people use co-governance to talk about part- what they call participatory democracy or participatory budgeting or participatory structures. It sounds like what you're talking about is something akin to that. And the only thing I would say, Dominic, is that in my experience and in a lot of organizers' experience, participatory structures that are neutral, um, what often happens is that the the people, the groups with the most power and ability to participate end up doing so. And the people with the least power income ability to participate don't. And then there's a, then there's an assumption that, oh, there was a participatory process. Anybody could have come. Those that came, we listened to them those that didn't, we didn't. And so unless it's tied to deep intentional work of organizing and uplifting the voices of the most marginalized, the structures in and of themselves, if they're neutral, don't help. So you need both. You need the participatory structures that allow for everybody to participate in a neighborhood or community, but then you actually need to be doing the work of organizing and making sure those that are least likely to be heard Least likely to have their voices listened to, least likely to be able to even show up to a town council meeting or have the time to do that are heard collectively, not just individuals who have time. I mean, it's like the the show Parks and Recreation, right? Like, you know, you know, those shows where people people have time show up to those meetings. And they talk for a long time.
4: <laughs> Our meetings were largely like that. You, you get yes. to learn about everybody with every disorder, personality disorder that you can <laughs> right. possibly imagine. They all come in and... and <laughs> right.
1: There are some people who love to participate and kudos to them. But the masses of people who don't have the ability or wherewithal or capacity or resources to participate, we have to intentionally make sure that they're heard. So the structures aren't enough. The organizing is essential.
0: Terrific. Thank you. We are officially out of time. So thank you for all of your good questions. We will be back on Wednesday with Zach Norris from the Ella Baker Center uh, uh, here in Oakland. And I thank you all for your time, attention, and outstanding questions for our Mm guests.